out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Billy Ritchie, sometimes known as William. Anyway, he was in the several bands, including One, Two, Three and The Clouds, or just Clouds, and um, have been credited as the pioneers of prog rock in the 60s and the very early 70s, and um, was also a friend of David Bowie, as you'll sort of find out within the interview. Anyway, look, this is it. I won't give you any more chat, because you'll find out more about Billy, prog, and much, much more as the show goes on. Anyway... After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Billy, take it away. Yeah, throw you at the piano. And that, that was the thing. I, I, as I said, one of the first things I said or, or the first clip they took of me for this show was me saying that uh, I had an unusual start because I wasn't that bothered about music. I didn't have any influences. I think that's partly... My theory, in hindsight, my theory about how the prog thing came into it is because I didn't have any barriers. Right. I, didn't, I didn't look on it. I didn't have any heroes either. So I just did whatever I had to do, which meant I wasn't leaning in any one particular way, which is why the arrangements in our band came out the way they did. Yes. You know, I, I didn't have any influences, really. Yeah. So were you parents at all you know did your was it out a musical house because i know <laughs> no when we got the piano when, when the piano was thrown out as i said in the program we probably only took it because it was free right at that time it wasn't that they wanted a piano it was just something for nothing you know yeah they regretted it because i was everybody in the house would be i'd be playing it and they'd say mom can you tell him to pack it in so that was my inspiration Yes, and that's quite an interesting one because because you're a little bit older than David Bowie and Lemmy, who were born on the same year. And when they ever did, they talk about their kind of musical hero, they both used to say Little Richard, and then there was like Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and Elvis Presley. So as you started getting a bit older, did did sort of people like that sort of come into your consciousness at all? And you started. Well, I mean, obviously David Bowie was one of our followers. We we were we were kind of. Um heroes to him at the time yes you know he was, he was somebody who was following us around because we we're doing one of his songs yes I, 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 one, you know? I sort of heard that on that on that particular documentary so then is as you were sort of getting into the I suppose the late 50s were you beginning to sort of find fellow friends who were you know into music as My, well that was how the bands the first band started the other the other guys were really into Elvis and uh Buddy Holly and all that stuff and I just went along for the ride, really. I, I wasn't really that bothered about any of it. I, I didn't feel part of it at all. It was only yes. when we had the band. Well, it's the same story from the the TV thing. But when when they started the band and they were trying to learn a song, and they they were really struggling to learn it, and I thought I was wondering what the problem was. So I played the whole thing, and they all looked at me as if I had horns in my head. So yes. that kind of made me think, wait a minute, I must be pretty good, right? So that was what started the journey. I started to kind of think, oh, well, I must be good. So that made me take it seriously and learn to be a lot better. But, so but did, it was an ego playing, trip more than anything else. Did, did music come very easily to you then? Did it just... It did, it did actually, but I didn't know that because I did it in isolation. 
and I, I did most of the early stuff in isolation. I had no feedback from anybody, and I didn't wasn't bothered about feedback. It was just like a hobby, you know. Yes. Uh, so I picked things up pretty easily. Yeah, and and was it you? You weren't born in a city, you know, like a lot of people I've interviewed. Oh, I was born on the sticks. They called us the barbarians. When the when the guys, when Ian and Harry, who later became the other members of the One Two Three Clouds thing, um, when they were when when somebody suggested that, that they said, "I know where this great organist is," and they said, "Where is he?" and he said, "He comes from Fourth, and they all laughed for about ten minutes because Fourth was a place they called us the Sheep Men. We're up in the hills, you know. We're all barbarians. Yes, so pretty so- taken back by all that." Well, I grew up in the sort of the East Anglian countryside in a village, so it was quite sparse and there wasn't that much to do apart from... Well, you would get something of that same flavour, wouldn't you? That's that's kind of how people from towns kind of view you that way. They're immediately superior. (laughs) Well, you know, culturally things never sort of kind of reach a village, really, you know, especially in East Anglia. It sort of seems to sort of, even though we're not that far from a city and not that far from London, it still feels like a long, long way. So I I have a place up in uh, Chatteris. You know Chatteris? No. It's up near, um, it's up in uh, Cambridgeshire. Up that way, up the flatlands. Oh God! Yes. So it is pretty yes. kind of. Uh, so as a as a yeah. career, what were you expected? You know, generally you were going to do because I I sort of watched a documentary a couple of months ago, and it was to do with <clears throat> I suppose Scottish football managers of the nineteen sixties and seventies. And Bill Shankly was going. You had two choices: you worked in the pit, or you might play football. Yeah. Was it? My father was a minor. Right. So were you kind of I thinking... was a personnel officer when, when, when I came to London, up till I came to London with the band, and we signed with Brian Epstein, you know, the Beatles manager, he signed yes. up. But um, up to that point, I'd been a personnel officer, what they call human resources now. Yes. That was, that was that was that was a pretty good job for that time. Well, I was going to say the personnel, the, the HR department are, are sort of like this enclosed can't touch people you know they everything has to wait they're like solicitors aren't they in a company often you you know they it was can't... a good job uh, it was pretty good and i put a lot of freedom in it but it was i wasn't very i found out later i wasn't very good at uh, living within frameworks where you had to a boss and tell you what to do i was i wasn't good at any of that no but i was lucky in the job i had i was very reluctant to come to london the guys wanted to go for ages, and I kept putting it off. But eventually, I did go. We we got the residency at the Marquee, you know. So was this was because you had two bands before one, two, three, which was um, the Satellites and is it the Premiers? The Premiers, yes. The Premiers were what the, the band that actually became one, two, three in Clouds. You know, the, the, most of the guys left, and it left us with organ, bass, and drums. Which yes. is, is quite normal now, but in those days that was like, people used to, right up to quite uh, most of the time we were together, people used to say, where's your guitarist? You know, it was, it was kind of unheard of until ELP came along. That was kind of the norm, not to have, you must have, a, even the nice had a guitarist when they started. Yeah. And, and I suppose... Used to say, oh, where's the guitarist? And I suppose the Doors didn't have a bass player, though, did they? They just had. They a... didn't have a bass player, but they had a lead guitar. You see, that was the. They did. That was the uh, essential. And the li- and the Lizard King with Jim Morrison. So, nineteen sixty-four was that the year? A great year. Um, was that the year you moved down to London? 
66. January 66. And by then, you would, this was the band, one, two, three. One, two, three. And we were playing all kinds of, we were playing a, a version of what later became Prog, really. Yes. Although Prog never, it's a bit, bit complicated, David, because although all those people copied us, what they ended up with wasn't like us at all. But it had many of the forms, you know, the, 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 different, uh, the different sections, different tempo, different pieces, rewritten pieces, all classical stuff. It had all those elements, but it didn't come out like one, two, three would still sound different to the program. Yeah. But they were they got it from us. They tried to copy us. I mean, so, I remember going to one of Yes's first rehearsals. Um, and uh, and uh, as soon as I heard them, I realized they were trying to copy us. <laughs> well, you well, they did America, didn't they? Which is, which they got from us. That's John right. admits, John Anderson actually is one of the ones that doesn't admit that. He says today that's where they got it from, hearing us. Right, I know. So if you listen to our version of America and theirs, you hear some pretty, some good similarities. Well, it's I interesting because a, a few years later, I was quite into a band called Spirit, and they've got a song, um, which oh, is sorry, yeah. which is kind of you can listen, you can hear bits of Stairway to Heaven in within there, you know, kind of, you know, and it's yeah, they're always going to court. I think they're going to give it up now. I think they've been to court quite recently and they've lost a game, so they're, they're not going to bother. But then, yeah, so as the 60s progressed and as you were in London at that stage, had you started to pick up on that kind of social, cultural, political change of the 60s from the early period of the Beatles where they're all in suits to the, to the slightly like, okay, 66, 67 was the summer of love where they had the 14-hour Technicolor dream in the Ali Pali and there was obviously a change a complete change of style and look and obviously drugs as well because LSD was kind of people were getting very expansive at that stage and then Jimi Hen Hendrix came along in London didn't he with you know Chaz well, Chalmers. Jimmy pretty well too you know we ran into him a few times. I would imagine. With Jimmy. You had you had what with Jimmy? We we did the Savile Theatre with Jimmy. He used right. to come used to come and jam with us too. Yes, well I know I know he there was used always to come and jam with us down the speakeasy places like that. Because I know there was a rumor that he was thinking of um, getting Steve Stevie Winwood in his band towards the end of the experience. So it's a kind of I think he was just getting a bit fed right. up with. Well, Dave Mason was a big friend of us. When when he used to jam with us, Dave Mason used to come and play bass. You know, Dave right. from Traffic. Right. So there was connections there. Eric Burton was another one who used to hang about with him. Eric yeah. used to get get up and sing with Jimmy at the clubs, you know. I would imagine. So was that all sort of filtering into your own sort of musical exploration? Because there were bands like... No, I, I, I don't know how to... I mean, it sounds bad in a way because I was kind of in my own head. I didn't really listen much to anybody else. I, I just went my own way. You know, that's that's how that thing happened. That's why we were playing songs that were so off the wall. And the people, the audience used to get pretty irate. They said, what the hell is this rubbish? You know, they used to, <laughs> all that stuff. And it was the musicians who loved us. Yes. And the, uh, a lot of the crowd were going, this is terrible. You know, we can't dance to this. What is this crap, you know? But, but people then, like John Anderson and all them loved it, you know? Yeah, but then what about people David like... Boy. 
Yes, David Bowie. But before David Bowie, but what about Pink Floyd and Roger Waters? Because he used to talk about wanting to annoy the crowd, but not by not playing the single on live concerts. I thought, or... funny, funny you should mention that, David. I, I think that um, in my mind, and one of the things I said in, in one of the books where I did an interview with a guy who was writing about Mountains from the Sky, that guy, um, Will Romano. Right. He, he did a book called Mountains from the Sky or something like that. Mountains. Oh. And that was about all the prog thing. And he spoke about Pink Floyd. And uh, I said to him, I said, at the time we were around, I thought they were the, just about the only other band that was completely different. They weren't on any bandwagons. They were, I mean, I thought they were quite uh, very striking. I knew Nick Mason pretty well. We did a few gigs together and had a few laughs. Yeah. But um, they were, they were uh, we did the... Um, Fillmore East in New York with them. We had a really good time. Yes. But uh, I thought Pink Floyd sounded really striking. I mean, like the, the piano player, for instance, Rick Wright, the keyboard player, you trouble knowing what he, what he was playing because he wasn't playing like a normal keyboard. He was just making sounds. It was very different. It was really striking, much more so than Dark Side of the Moon and things. What they did when they got rid of Sid or when Sid dropped out, they used the flavour of Sid. Yes. You know, it was right off the wall when Sid was there. But when oh, Sid dropped out, they, 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 they kept, they had a blandness about what they did, but they also had the flavor of Sid. That's what Dark Side of the Moon was all about. And did you it, meet? It had that little flavor, a twist in it. Yes. That little bit. I mean, it's successful because I'm sure you know the public like bland. They like things that are predictable and okay. And, Nicely with packaged. Floyd, you got a bit of both. You got a flavour of something that was different in among all that. Yeah, absolutely. So that was quite interesting. So why, because what I've always been interested in, because as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, David Bowie was this kind of first single and then I lucked out really. And then I became, you know, was obsessed with him for the rest of, you know, his life. And, um, but then, you know, looking at his 60s work, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty forgettable unless he, did the stuff that he did, you know, in the following decades. Well, but I was did... really friendly with David for a while, as you probably know. I mean, um, when did that you think at the marquee? We stayed. I was just about the first person to hear Space Oddity. Right. I mean, there's a one of the other one of the other thing, uh, programs I was on was a Trailblazers one about glam rock. Oh yeah. I yes. spoke about David on that one, um, and uh, I said, I said that he was. He always wanted to be part of a fad. He always tried to be hip in some kind of way. I mean, he was always, he always had a, the voices he did were always somebody else's voices. Yeah, Anthony Newley. I mean, yeah, well, I said in that program, that I said, when I heard Space Oddity, I said, he played it to me, the early version they had recorded at home with a stylophone, you know, the Rolf Harris thing. Yes. And, and as soon as he played it to me, I said, it was the Bee Gees, right? <laughs> and he just laughed. <laughs> You know, so, the, the, the Australian accent, you know, ground control to my guitar. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, he, he threw everything at it because he went through a lot of bands and a lot of lineups in the 60s. He'd sort of done various yeah. bands, but then he did the folk stuff with John Hutchinson and Hermione. And then he did, the yeah, then he sort of got involved with people like John Cambridge as well as um, Mick Ronson. Yeah, I know the... I, I, when, when, uh, Space Oddity, when Space Oddity was a top 10 hit, it was a one-hit wonder after that. 
Yes. I mean, at, at the time, it, just before it was a hit, was one of the, I took him to the Albert Hall. When we did the Albert Hall with Jeff Rattel and 10 years after, I took him there. I was, I was talking to Ian Anderson quite recently, and he said, I don't remember that. You know, David Bowie being in the dressing room. I said, well, you wouldn't because he wasn't famous then. He was just a bloke. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, just, he wasn't the white duke, he was just this bloke who was in the dressing room. It's funny, I'd done an interview with Ian Anderson, kind of, I oh, right, of yeah, yeah. and it was kind of interesting because Dave, because he was producing all, yeah, producing an um, album by Steel Eye Span, and they were doing a cover of yeah. the Phil Spector to know him, to love him. They wanted a saxophone player, and Ian, Ian said, oh, I know somebody, David Bowie, you know, I mean, this was in the 70s, so he'd, he'd done Ziggy by then. Yeah. So he came down, he just did the saxophone bit and went out and just went, well, there you go. He didn't, you know, he didn't get paid. But then decades later, when he mentioned it, he made a joke and go, oh, yes, you never paid me for that session. So <laughs> I think they yeah, all... he is a particular character, you know. <laughs> so got, it's kind I, of... I get messages from him now and again, just, you know, tell me, he just told me recently he's uh, going back on the road again. After hiding under the bed was the way he put it. Yes, well, I After think everyone. Under the bed for a I think, I think everyone wanted to, you know, when 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 everything's there, we kind of take it for granted. But then having everything taken away, I think most bands have kind of like gone. Actually, I quite like going back on the road. So I, I've noticed there's been a lot of people aren't messing about anymore. They're they're getting tour dates sorted. Yeah. Even Gen well, even Genesis. Ian's life, isn't it? He just he doesn't know what else to do with himself, really. This is true. I mean, we were on the road with them a lot, obviously, with the same manager. Yes. So with um, so with that sort of London scene, did it have that feeling of being a bit of a, well, I say a bit of a community, but were you sort of seeing and, and sort of checking each other out all the time, seeing different bands, different lineups? Uh, there was always that aspect. I mean, when we, were, we did the marquee in those days, uh, the guys from Sin were, most of the guys from Sin uh, were in a band called, uh, but the guys from Yes were in a band called Sin. And John Anderson was the barman. Right. At the Shas Club, which was next door. So they weren't formed yet. Yes. Uh, there was a lot more sort of, um, yes, you were checking each other out, but you weren't particularly friendly, most of the guys, <laughs> you know. No, it was it was real competition. The one exception to that was that when we were spent a lot of time in Birmingham, the guys in Birmingham were amazingly friendly and all supportive of each other, like Jeff Lynn and those guys. Jeff was yes. with the Idol Race in those days, That's but but they were all really good guys, you know, really friendly, no backbiting. That was weird. Because yes. in London you had all of that, you know. I would imagine, actually. So that's, yeah, so that's, I was just going to say, you know, that was kind of interesting with the David Bowie stuff, kind of um, the way he developed so much and the way it kind of changed. Because there was no way you would have put any money on David developing as the artist. He was he probably... an actor. He, he was an actor much more than he was a musician or anything. He, 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 he was musical. He, had, he was a really artistic person, very intelligent and very artistic. That was his, and and the thing that he did was great. Was when he got that when he was got that lucky break with Top of the Pops. That's what made it. That's what made everything work. Yes. He just he, he had he knew how to play it all. He played it all to perfection. He knew yeah. how to what levers to press. But he was lucky. He was lucky. It was that Top of the Pops. He he wasn't scheduled to do it. It was somebody else and. And uh, they couldn't make it. And he got drafted in at the last minute. And, and when people saw him, it wasn't the music, it wasn't the sound, it was what people saw. The pink hair, the sparkly suits, 
Yes, well, well, a lot of artists and musicians I spoke to have all mentioned the T word. It's about timing. And some some just went, oh, we were two years too early for a scene. He was lucky, yes. And, and so we were, and, we, that's what, funny, funny, David, that's true. That's what was wrong with us. We were too early. We were too early. Our timing was all wrong. And then even we got signed by, the, by Brian Epstein, the top manager, but he died within a couple of months, signing us. But then what, I've, I've met a few bands who, who, you know, they go to sign with a record label, you know, the person who's signed them is really enthusiastic, and then two months later they turn up and that person's kind of moved on because they've got a promotion somewhere else or some other gig, and then everyone else in the record label are going, oh, I'm not sure what to do with you. We're not that bothered about you now. So it's almost like, oh, yeah, my God. So, the... so much of that. Yes. I mean, Terry, Terry Ellis loved, absolutely loved us. We were his band. And then he signed Jeff Rattel, and they took off. So he had not time to look after us. And that was we were unlucky that way, too. You know, we had a, an incredible tour. Our first tour of America was strand. If you read the reviews of that, we, we had a barnstorming time. But... Terry was nowhere to be seen because he, he uh, was with Jeff Rattel all the time. That's how he became a millionaire. There so it's a cutthroat. But we business. lost out. We lost out. It was bad timing for us. We, we, um, we weren't looked after. And with, we with I was going to say with Brian Epstein. Then had he had he sort of got plans for you to um, yes. Well, he, I, we we didn't really know what. I mean, he he put us in this in sort of stripy suits, didn't he? He said things like, um, uh, sophisticated music must have sophisticated attire. And we thought, <laughs> what's he on about, you know? But, but uh, I think he must have seen something, yeah. yeah. And he put us on that concert at the Savile with Jimmy. So I think he must have felt we were doing something completely different, you know? Well, I guess there was so much, because there was people like the Incredible String Band, and there was another band called Comus who were also quite experimental. So there was this kind of folk, almost progressive side yeah. as well, coming out as well, you know, and people... That's right, but I think the thing that, that, that made people, that made the people like Yes and uh, King Crimson and all them follow us was because it was most of all about music. It was very, it was about virtuoso kind of playing and all that, which appealed to them. Yes. But what they missed... Well, the point, the point they missed was taste. And if, if you're playing something that complicated, you must make double sure that you keep taste and sense. They didn't do that. that that's what they, that's what, that was the failure. Yes, very clever playing and all the intricacy, but what about the song? What about the sense of it? They missed that, they, they missed that point completely. Yes. So then what happens between one, two, three and clouds? Or is it just a continuation, but just with it was meant to be, but but when when um when Brian Epstein died and Robert Stigwood looked after us then and he had just signed the Bee Gees and he already had cream. Right. So we were kind of shoved to one side and then eventually we just uh, dropped out of name as the company. But Terry Ellis signed us. But the first thing Terry said was, you've got to drop all this very clever head-banging music stuff. You've got to you know, be accessible to people. And he said, you need a new name. And that's when he said Clouds. And I went, oh, no, anything but that. Can't you think of something better than that? Terrible name. But, but he stuck with it. But that was, that was all Terry. But he made us drop everything that we played and start again. Right. 
Yes, that's interesting. And then you, you just thought it was too much uh, for musicians. It wasn't for punters, you know. Yeah, I mean, did you get a sense as as because this was in sixty nine seventy that that transition happened? Did you get a sense of yeah. a kind of a, a a musical shift? Because what I have also noticed is that every I don't know, roughly every five years there's this new wave of sixteen to eighteen year olds who come along yeah. and they kind of want their next sound and suddenly. Bands like the Beatles must start looking a little bit tired or, I don't know. I mean, there must just be that sense of a new generation coming along who are looking... There was, but I must, I, I must be honest and say that I was pretty dumb that way. I, I, I kind of was... Just as I had been in my, on my own as regards the kind of music we played, I was also very, very slow to accept anything new. I mean, when, when Rick and uh, Keith were playing... Um, synthesizers i was still playing organ piano it was like an anachronism without knowing it you yes know? i'd not moved on the more i was kind of stuck that way i was in my own zone that's that the upside of it was i could create all that stuff that that actually was a forerunner of prom the downside of it was that I, I i wasn't adaptable to the i wasn't even receptive or noticing the changes they happened in hindsight to me Yes. So when in 69, you brought out the, your first album as Clouds called, the, you know, the Cloud Scrapbook. Scrapbook so did, yes. did that come together relatively quickly? Because this was also on Island record, Records, wasn't it? It was. What happened there, David, was that um, because of the switch over from one, two, three to Clouds, Terry said, do you have any of your own songs? Well, I had loads of songs. But we'd never really played any of them because we weren't that kind of band. We did other people's songs and changed them all, a la Prog, you know. Uh, so when I played Terry my songs, he loved them. But I found it really hard to assimilate those songs into the band. It was a real struggle. So Terry's answer to that was to do an album where he chose some of my songs and a couple of the things that the band did. So you got an album that had a mixture of both. Yes. A lot of the songs of Scrapbook were nothing to do with the band. They were just my songs, you know? Yes. And what made you I just... Made a, a bit of a strange album. Yeah. And what made you, before that, do the David Bowie, I, is it I Dig Everything? Yeah, well, that was uh, Ian, our bass player. He, he picked it up on the radio. We, we'd, we'd actually known, we ran into David in Dundee. When we were the premiers, we played in Dundee with David. Oh. Um, there was a gig with a guy called Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Yes, we love Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. And, and also in that bill was us, the Premiers, and David's band. What was it, the lower third or one of those ones? Yes. And, uh, and, David, and David came up to me at the gig and, and he said, I haven't seen a guy play keyboards like you before because I, you know, I was out front and giving it all that, a bit like Emerson did for me. And and uh, I, I thought he pretty stood out. I thought he had a lot of um, style. And we said, oh, we're planning to come to London. We'll, we'll try and see you down there. And, and that's that's how we got in touch, you know. When um, when he heard about I Dig Everything, uh, then he came down to the marquee. And then, of course, we'd known each other already. So we, that's how we linked up. Yes. Well, that's amazing. That's, that's fantastic. Did you ever go to Haddon Hall? Did you ever see him? Did you ever go to his place no and... now that was kind of by 69 that kind of time yeah 69 70 well, I, I fell out with him i fell there's a kind of famous well 
sort of famous story. I fell out with him, uh, and uh, we played at the Brighton Dome with a band called Edgar Broughton. Yes. It was Edgar Broughton band and us, and David was on the bill. It, this was sometime after Space Oddity. I hadn't seen him for a while, because Space Oddity had been a hit. And at the Brighton Dome, he, he, he got booed off the stage. He did about three songs that he got booed off. He was just playing acoustic guitar, the Dylan haircut. Yes. And he got booed off the stage and he walked off. And when he came off the stage and Ian Harry went to talk to him, he was a bit funny with them. I was sort of further behind and I could see him being a bit off with them, you know, sort of cold shouldering them. And I came up to him and I said, why don't you go and fuck yourself? <laughs> that was a... Uh, he was just a bit shocked, really. And, and for ages after that, he tried to get in touch with me and I wouldn't talk to him. Uh, it was, um, he wanted me to play on uh, Life on Mars and I refused. Rick right. Wakeman was my standard. That's Dude, true. That is so true. So I did... was supposed to do it. God, that's Ian, so... and Harry, Ian and Harry did the demos. He asked us to help him out with the demos of uh, what would become Ziggy Stardust. And Ian and Harry, who were the, our bass player and drummer, they did it, but I refused. So again, Rick did that. Right. I, I, it was only years later, him and I kind of made it up a bit. He got in touch with me. He sent me a photograph, a signed photograph for my son and all that. I saw him a couple of weeks, uh, oh, must have been a year before he died, something like that. We met up. Did you? Yeah. Where did you get? Where yeah, we, you... Well, we kept in touch. You know, he, he wrote to me. Did you, did you see that stuff he wrote about me in the Mojo and things? He wrote about me in Mojo. Yes. Um, I... Said some flattering things, but then he was, I think he was always a bit kind of felt guilty because of what happened at Brighton Dome. That's what I think happened there. Yes. Anyway, so do... we kept in touch a bit. And um, there would, there, a friend of his, Kevin Kahn, was doing a book. Uh, did, a, right. did a book about him and uh, I, without me knowing it Kevin set us up to, to meet up oh right when I, when I walked in and saw him and he said uh, he just said hello and I said uh, it should have been the other way around and he just laughed you know because I was meaning I should have been the star and he got <laughs> it he just laughed all the other people that was there were saying what the, talk, what the hell are you talking about but he got it, you know. Nice. He, said, he just laughed. So that we used to talk like that. We used to say, "When I assumed I would be the famous one," you know. <laughs> God, that's amazing. How wrong could you be? You, slightly, no. But uh, but he, you know, at that stage, I mean, getting booed off stage. So just so when he got just because because you said your two colleagues just kind of blanked him, and you said, "What did you?" Say? Oh, he blanked them. He he came off the stage. With, I don't know if you if you saw that documentary thing. The Sky TV people told me that when 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 he came off the stage, he had a girl in his arm. He was walking off the stage, and and he kind of Ian and Harry went up and said, "Hey, David," and he sort of said, "Do I know you?" So he spoke was a bit like that, you know. Right. And I was I was some way behind, and I heard him say it, and I walked up, and he looked around and saw me coming, and I I just pointed at him and went, "Why don't you go?" And, you know. <laughs> and uh, but Sky TV told me afterwards when I told some of the story of that on the, on on the interview we did, they didn't show all of it. But they it turned out that the girl on his arm was a girl called Anne Nightingale. Oh, you know, the DJ. 
Yes, who was in that program? Uh, Nightingale. And, and she told the same story. She said that they talked about the Brighton Dome, and she said, when he when he came off the stage to a bad reception, she said it got worse because a friend came up and swore at him. This was me. <laughs> Excellent. That's and she took well, him to the pub afterwards. Well, yeah. But well, for, get... for a long time afterwards, I wouldn't talk to him. Now he kept trying to get in touch with me, and I, I, I was so pissed off with him, really. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's I, it's kind of interesting because John Cambridge has just done that. You know, he was the drummer who gets replaced he by was Woody. The drummer, yeah, I remember the story with Woody. The Woody the thing. Yeah, and he um, he keeps in touch with David towards the end. So, was it when he was in New York that you sort of got in touch and kept in touch with each other again? Yeah, he was. Uh, I got a few things from LA. Funny enough, I know he was in New York, but, I, but some things. Uh, Postmarked LA. Right. He just kept in touch generally. He sent a few little messages and things like that. That's and so we cool. always said about meeting up, but we never, we only did by accident that last time, you know. We never got a chance to talk because he was surrounded by and and just before I didn't realize it was Kevin, Kevin, who was mutual friend by this time, Kevin said to me, Oh, David's really not well at the moment. He's really very, very ill. And I said, Well, Tell him, tell him to get well soon and wish him all the best. I was stupid of me because I didn't realise he meant he was dying. No. I just thought it, you know, some ailment. And I only found out afterwards. He sent a message to me, David. He said, I just want you to know that those uh, years together meant a lot to me. And I thought it was a funny thing to say out of the blue. And that was just be the week before he died. Crikey. That's quite humbling, really, isn't it? Oh, that's a bit chilling. Um, God. So it did... is, yeah. I was, I was, of course, I was really stupid because I never realised how ill he was. I just thought it was, nobody told me uh, how serious it was. I just thought it was some kind of, like, flu or something, you know? Yeah. So did you that's meet stupid. up in person the year before he died in, in New York? Did you meet him there or was he? No, in... no, it was, in, it was at the Proud Galleries in, uh, in Camden. Oh, that's when he was doing his coming round and showing his family what where he used to live. Yeah, there was something like that. And Kevin was doing a, a book presentation at the Proud Galleries. Right. And, God. Um, yeah. He, he wasn't there. There was all kind of famous people at the, the galleries, but this was before the thing started. But yeah. he, he had a lot of... People, uh, people from his old band and that were all there. There was a load of people there who couldn't talk properly. No. But it was nice to see him. I was amazed how old he looked. Because when I'd seen him on telly, he looked amazingly young. But when you see him in person, when you saw him in person, he was really quite old. And you'd never have recognised him because he had, like, uh, a hat on pulled over his head. That was his disguise, you know? Yes. God. Well, I think he'd... But, yeah, he'd he'd had that heart attack and then he recovered slightly, but then he obviously yeah. had other issues. So, um, crikey, it's all a bit, it's a bit the, the passing of time, isn't it? It's a bit too much, really, at times. So when... Oh, it's a bit of a shock. I mean, I, I've, I've sort of, like, a, like what happens with a lot of famous people, I've sort of dined out on knowing him or something. Not intentionally, but it keeps getting put up there to me because I have to know him. <laughs> I think it's quite sort of funny. It's like, um, you know, people from 40 years ago and you just forget about each other. But because he's famous, 
It sort of sticks to you, you know? Yes, you would probably go, God, did I used to work with someone like that? I don't know. You know, it doesn't really care. But then, yes, because because going back to your, because it was only 50 years ago now, with, the, with clouds, oh. I mean, because most bands I've, I've done interviews with, they have a five-year narrative, especially in the 80s. You know, they get together, they have that 12-month honeymoon period, best friends, you know, John Peel, they'd get a single John Peel play it, they get a John Peel session, good thing. Second, first album, honeymoon period second album a bit tricky if they ever do many tours especially america british bands always seem to collapse and they finish by then so you it's american tour syndrome yes the american tour i didn't realize the american tour was just always going to be you a... heard that one before the america tour syndrome it's like you're playing you're playing to we playing to like twenty thousand people a night and all that stuff you play at the film auditorium with five thousand seats you know you play the the Whiskey and Gogo, you play all those places. You play the uh, Forum in LA, and you're doing all these massive gigs. The record companies are visiting you all the time, and you're getting all these reviews. And, and then you come back home again, and you're, the first gig we did when we came back was a, a, a town hall in Wales, and it said, Dance to the Clouds. And you played about 150 people, and you think, my God. At one time, you'd be quite okay with that. But because you've done this big stuff, it kind of makes you feel that you've lost your way. Yes. That's the American Tour Center. Yes. And also, I think the distances of traveling as well is, is something that people find a little bit difficult because we moaned because we're, you know, I'll say we're English people, really, because I'll keep it just to, yeah. we love to moan, don't we? Even Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> we we sort of you know have to go two hours somewhere we go oh I can't be bothered whereas in America I mean I'd be in you know I've interviewed people when they were kids going oh we had to go we'd have to drive eight hours to go to see a band you know thinking God I wouldn't bo- I wouldn't have bothered if we had to drive two hours I felt so guilty you anyway just, was, uh, on tours well Bruce Bruce put it very well in his books but on tours you um you just lose your way you know you said you're sitting in a city and you say to each other where is this <laughs> You know, you, you've lost the plot completely because every day is the same. Well, when I did, you when get I on the when, plane, you get on the plane, you arrive, you go do the sound check, you have a hamburger, you do the gig, you get up the next day, and you do the same again. Well, t- <laughs> you know, when I did my interview with Tim yesterday, no, at the weekend, he said that the the one thing that you have to learn not to do is become a tourist and think, oh God, we're in we're in this place, I must go and see these sites, because he said that that kind of finishes you off. You have to sort of <laughs> conserve your energy and otherwise you're just going to start getting really tired and ragged ragged. that's a different take on it i mean my my take on it was that you just kind of lost your way completely i didn't you have to be a gypsy there's certain people like ian our our guy our bass player ian he's still doing it he's still on the road he's on the road with a chicken shack oh yes the old stan webb christine he still does that ian's done all that he did he did with pete townsend he did it with steve hackett He's on the he's, he's just one of those guys that loves being on the road. I'm the opposite. I, I, I couldn't be bothered with it. Yes. So with 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 clouds, dance dance to the clouds, just clouds. Um, clouds. When you got to the um, watercolor days, which is kind of your, your intense three albums in three years, did you when you were recording that? Did you sort of feel that that was going to be the end of the band? Oh no, we're. Well, I think that one of the things I'm really sad about was we, we struggled 
we struggled with uh, the recording studio. We we did we, we were very slow to get into recording. We didn't, you know, coming from the sticks like we did, we didn't have experience of studios or anything. We were very good live. We knew all about live. We could kill most bands live. We were really tough. We had tough, a tough time on the road. Yeah. And that was good because we were much tougher musically than any other band. But the opposite was true in the studio. We, we, we struggled with the studio. By watercolour days, we were beginning to get the picture. And that's the way it is for most, most bands to some extent. We were worse, but you need another two albums. I mean, we, we mentioned Pink Floyd. Dark Side of the Moon was so good because they'd done so many other albums. They got the picture. Yes. It's a different medium. It's not like being on a stage. You, you need time to, to make it all come together. Yeah. We never got that time. Well, two and a half albums wasn't enough. Yeah, well, I, I sort of realised. I mean, there's certain bands who, you know, they 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 seem to get the first album almost perfect or the second, and it's almost too good because they're not going to get the third and fourth. And other bands, especially, I don't know if it's a sweeping statement, it might be, but you know, definitely in the sixties, seventies, there's there seems to be a bit of like, is it um, research and development, R and D, you know. Yes, where, you know, like the first couple are like, my God, this isn't good. But, you know, hopefully there's going to be something on the third or fourth albums. And look, you, you have know, to be lucky with your producers. You know, yeah, we, we didn't have a producer and you need a good producer. Like my friend, uh, one of my old friends from those days, John Anthony, he, he did Genesis and the early Queen and all that stuff. You need somebody like that that's going to, that can put it together for you. You had John Burns. Who was John Burns? John, John Burns as well was a big friend of mine, yeah. John was on the road with us. He so did, with, he did Genesis as well, yeah. John did, Burns. He, did he manage to capture the sound of the band? No, I'll tell you why. Because he was, um, we were his first album they ever produced. That's a disaster. We were, we were the first people they ever produced. We were, we were his practice run. It's not going to be he good. He's a great guy, John. But he was an engineer, basically. And, and it was later on he did the Genesis stuff and all that. Oh, we right. got it together. But he, he, he looks back on our album and, and knows what he should have done now. And we couldn't help him because we didn't have a clue either. <laughs> because then, in bizarrely, um, my, my brother, who's seven years older than me, he was the generation who was into prog rock. So he suddenly had all these albums that I used to sneak into his room to listen to. So yes, Genesis, uh -huh. Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. I used to sort of go there and listen to all these records with great enthusiasm. And these are the people that you've kind of influenced. And then suddenly it all happens, doesn't it? Yeah, we, we were just too early. That happens a lot to the pioneer kind of people, doesn't it? You know, you, you, you take all the, all the people that was booing us, are the same people that bought all their albums. Yes, I know. You know, it was just too early. It just, they just couldn't, it was, it was the era of, I mean, bands like Deep Purple at that time were wearing frilly orange shirts and singing Knock on Wood, you know? And status um, quo. They, yeah, they, they were at the top of the pops with them and they were doing <laughs> pictures of My Stick Men and stuff like that. And we were back in a band called uh, Reparata and the Delrons. Wow. This is the captain of your ship. We were their backing group. <laughs> Never come across that before. We did, we did Top of the Pops. When I came out of the studio in Shepherd's Bush, I had a little moustache at the time, and a, a bunch of girls jumped to me because they thought I was Francis Rossi. Oh. And, and they're tearing out my clothes, and one of them says, it's not him. 
Yeah, so so close and yet. So did you have a moment with the band where you sat down to say to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? Yeah, I, yeah, well I I realized after the um after the watercolor days thing and the way things were going with Terry, Terry, Terry took me into his office and said, I'd like you to um I'd like to just forget the band and and you uh do you write songs and things? And I went, no, no. He says, we'll give you your own publishing company. And I went, no, stick it. And that was kind of the end then, really. I just thought, nah, this isn't going to work. And But for a lot of that year, I was thinking about how to get out of it. In right. the end, uh, I, I thought the only way to do it is kick everything off the stage and walk away. And that's what I did. In the middle of a gig, I kicked everything off the stage. Did you? Walked out. That was very dramatic. Which, yeah. where, where, where was this? Stoke and Trent. Stoke and Trent. So the only way it's your Ziggy Stardust moment. I just kicked it? I kicked everything off the stage in the middle of the gig and walked out of the hall. I didn't see Ian and Harry again for another 10, 15 years. Were they did they know that was coming? No. God, they must have been. No, that was the point. You couldn't, you had to kind of it was the only way to talk about it now. You just keep getting dragged back. You know, you just had to, I knew it had to be something to I mean, Apart from anything else, it forced me to do something, you know? Yes. To get on with my life. Well, there you but go. But it happened. I never found anything really to... I should have probably stayed in the music business, but I was so fed up with it. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I have come across quite a lot of people who've, who've had the same feeling of like... Oh, it's a terrible business, you know? It's not good. So is that, so is that moment on Stoke-on-Trent, was that the last moment that you play music yeah that was close finished never heard the funny thing is we just you, you mentioned wishbone ash well they were a much smaller band than us in those days yeah and, and they copied a lot of things we did too um but we disappeared without trace you know for we suddenly for a band that had been where we'd been we just completely disappeared off the radar and heard nothing then all of a sudden we start appearing in all the magazines and I bring out all the records again. David Bowie calls me a genius. You know, you think, where's all this coming from, you know? So when, just because I'm... That was 20 years later. 20 years later, he says... So you can imagine, it was very mind-blowing. And all the videos started coming out. You know, they found the videos from Beat Club and stuff. Yes. You know, stuff that we'd done. So they all That was done. very mind-blowing. You can imagine, after 20 years away from it, you think, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> but it was all dead, very dear it is again. So that was in the was that the nineties or the 80s you suddenly become nineties. The nineties. Right. Nineteen ninety one it started. That must have been so very was, strange when David Bowie suddenly gets it. Was in very weird. Yeah, it was very weird to read all that, you know. Yeah, they Mojo interviewed him about me and he said uh, he said I was an unrecognized genius. God, well, that's really nice. Yeah, that's right. I thought that was very embarrassing. Yes, well, yes, but then, you know, it's good. But do you then stop playing music altogether during this time? Yeah, I, 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 that was the end of it for me, yes. I didn't... That was it gone. So have you ever played Harry formed another. Harry formed another band. Harry kept going and formed another band managed by the Marquis. Yeah. And he had um, Alan... Alan... Um, oh, what was his name? 
the guy he played he played with level 42 with the guitarist alan oh god no i have no idea <laughs> well he, he, he you know some of the guys in harry's band did really well Harry, the first band that supported Harry, the marquee, was a band called Queen. Right. You went blind. And he, Harry turned down You To Me or Everything. He was offered that and he turned it down. Harry. <laughs> then he yeah. left the business after that. Yeah. But Ian so stayed in it. Ian, Ian worked with Steve Hackett on a couple of his albums and things like that. So does that mean that you, you haven't sort of, in the last 20, 10 years, um, played keyboards or anything? I'm, I'm playing things with some friends on records and things like that, but um, I've not, it's not something I've any feeling for, you know. It's, it was the end of it for me, really. Yeah. Well, it's kind of weird because there was a guitarist with a band called Blue Cheer from America, Randy Holden, I think his oh, name is. Yes. And he said that um, he had a very similar experience where he just, he just got so fed up, he thought, no, I'm not going to touch the guitar. And I think suddenly yeah. some, some fan had sort of found him. 20 or 30 yeah. years later and bought him a guitar because he didn't even have an instrument and, and he started playing. I don't, yeah, I don't have any of that. I don't, well, I was always a bit like that. When, when David Palmer, it's now called D Palmer, isn't he? David, who did the strings with Jethro and us. Yeah. And he came to my flat. When we were doing watercolour days, he came to my flat with an acetate to talk about the string parts. And I said, there's only one problem, David, I don't have a record player. And he went, what? You're a musician, a songwriter, you don't have a record player? I went, no, I don't. Uh, he thought that was really weird. Yes. That's that, well, there you go. I never listened to people, you see. I, I only was interested in myself, I'm sorry to say. Yes, well, I have to say, that's, that's fantastic. So, so is it the case that you just got another career and... That's it. You just, you just. Yeah, I tried various things. I ended up uh, doing property management. I became a real money person. <laughs> um, did all that stuff. Actually, the, the I never found anything that. I actually, in hindsight, I wish I had stayed in the music business because I never found anything to take the place of it. You know. Yes. Just when you said I did something, the 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 record, the the thing just went. Err. What did you say? You you got into something which was kind of money related. The property management. Right. I, I bought bought a lot of houses, and they you know, became a bit of a magnet. <laughs> was that all? And and are you now based in Scotland? No, it was down. It was in London. I've always lived in London. Okay, I've okay. always lived in. Carried on living in London. Yes, I always. Kept that was it. all down here, but very boring, really. It was no substitute for music. No. And nothing is. Nothing is, you know. I never found anything. So it was very weird for me when all this stuff came back again. You know, the, at first you don't know what to make of it. When I, saw the, when I saw the first video of us on Beat Club, you know, the German program. Yes. It was Colour TV as well. The first time I, I was quite freaked out by it. I, thought, I watched that guy playing the keyboard and I thought, who the hell is that? It was me, but I thought, I don't know you. You know, it was like that. It was very weird. God, that is strange. I very mean, mixed feelings. It wasn't a good feeling. It wasn't a good feeling. It was a mixed feeling, you know. It was like, and another thing somebody said to me in an interview at one point, they said, you don't seem very, he said, all this stuff coming out and the band getting praised, you don't seem, you know, all that happy about it. I said, well, it's like, it's like somebody saying that it proves that you missed out on something. Right. It's like it proves that you were swindled. <laughs> yeah. God, that is so strange though, isn't it? 
So when, you know, you started getting in, when David started getting in touch again, was it just a case of just kind of swapping emails and sort of the odd little... Yeah, that kind of thing. It was, it was just, a, well, it was used to send me cards and things, you know, using tour and stuff. We spoke a couple of times on the phone and things. Yeah. We kept in touch a bit, but it was no big thing. We didn't do it that regularly. It was just, I th my theory always was that he felt a bit guilty about what happened to Brighton, you know? Yeah, because he wasn't noted for uh, being generous to his past uh, connections. But well, Kev, one of the things, Kevin, Kevin, who wrote all the books about him, he was always amazed how much David had uh, spoke up for me, because he never did it for many people. But I think <laughs> I think that's what it was. I think it was he felt he always felt bad because, and of course, for a long time afterwards, when he tried to get in touch, I would, I would ignore him. You know. Yes. Well. <laughs> Yes, well, well I think that, that kind of stuck with him a bit. Yeah, I think it was quite tricky because I know he, he, I think he also felt a bit guilty with uh, Trevor Boulder, the bass player, and Woody, because I don't think they yeah, did very so well. Yeah, he should. I mean, it was terrible what he did with the band. Yes, and also John Cambridge as well, who was the drummer, because he kind of gets Yeah, well, shaft. he got kicked out, didn't he, John? Yeah, so I think, I think there was... He was quite ruthless that way. He was a bit of a user, David, wasn't he, really? He was determined... There's something you see in common with people that would be stars. They, 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 they would go to any lengths for stardom. And morals not don't come into it, you know? Yes, and, and youth. Did you ever get to meet? Because I always think that he, what happened, this is my, one of my theories, it might be wrong, but his 60s work was not going to make him. But then when he found, when Angie Bowie appears and then Tony DeFries and then Tony Visconti, they seem to sort of be the perfect, everything starts to line up with this person called David Bowie, because up to then, he wasn't going to make anything, there was nothing particularly memorable, and then suddenly these kind of quite pushy and quite dynamic people appear in his life, and he seems to then step up a gear, that's kind of my theory on... on... I think there's truth in that, and I think, I think one of the things with David, he's always casting around looking for a way to be popular, he was always trying to be hip, was my, my take on it. He was always writing things that he thought would sound like he was one of the cool guys, you know. Um, but when he, but as I said earlier, one of the things that he did brilliantly was when he got the opportunity, he seized it. He really knew how to play it. He played it to perfection. Yes, it was quite something. He played though. it all to perfection. It wasn't the songs. I mean, when they did that, I thought it was really telling that uh, B and A exhibition. When it, there was nothing to do with his music, it was all about his style of things. I mean, I mentioned in that thing because I, I thought it was quite funny. Again, it was a bit like the orange jumper thing, you know, us and tell they, they take Japanese tourists around to the Savile Theatre. Yes. And they would, they, one of the things they would say to them was, "This is where Billy Ritchie introduced David Bowie to Jimi Hendrix." <laughs> made it sound so big, you know. It was, it was, it was just in the dressing room, and I said, "Jimmy, this is David." That was as simple as that. But they made it sound like a. It becomes so mythic, doesn't it? Well, absolutely, and and yes, and and obviously the one with Jethro Tull as well. I guess the yeah. I mean, it's. I suppose now we look at that period of music and, and everyone's really fascinated because because you realize that music had only you know popular music had only started in about 62 63 so you were you were the pioneers and in a way everyone's going to go back to what happens at the beginning because everything then gets kind of 
everything's the same, it isn't it? A mythic, it all gains a mythic quality. It was it, whereas at the time it was just you were just in a club playing. It was it wasn't it wasn't what people think it was. You know, it was no, just like any other club where somebody's playing. But because it's because you weren't there, because all those people weren't there, they imagine it in all kinds of ways. You know. But then, it but then when you know, quality. but then someone like Jimi Hendrix has never been, you know, no one's ever got close to him again. So it's always going to be. Something. Yes, for that too. Yeah, it is quite unique. He was, he was such a quite nice guy, Jimmy. In those days, I think yeah. he became. When I saw later interviews, he he seemed to realise what his fame was. But in those early days when we knew him, he was very withdrawn and quite quiet. David was quite pissed off at him because he thought he'd liked him a bit. <laughs> he did, because he, just, he didn't seem that impressed by David. But, but why should he be, you know? No, absolutely. I mean, David was quite offended. <laughs> he sounds quite a sensitive chap, actually. So, um, Well, yeah, so. He, he thought he should be important, you know? Yes, absolutely. I looked at him as a young gopher. Right. I looked at him as a bit of a young gopher at the time. He just somebody followed us around. You know, we were just we were the big shots, Brian Epstein's group and playing at the marquee, and he was just hanging around us because he thought we were going to be one of the end things. You know. Yes, amazing, amazing. So yeah, so if if you could have said something to your 16, 18 year old self starting out, is there anything that you would have thought? God, I would have just given them a couple of words of wisdom or some bit of advice. Yes, I would. I would say. I would say. Look at the bigger picture. Don't don't be in the don't be so sensitive about everything. Recognize that this is where you what you should be doing. Don't attempt to kind of force your way into it and out and therefore get out of it again. When I walked out of it, I didn't realize I was actually giving my life up. Yes, I would like to give tell him to keep cool, <laughs> <laughs> but he couldn't. He couldn't. Is it the case that you could have imagined being in a quite a different band again, you know, just kind of reinventing yourself slightly with the keyboard and being in a different musical setup? I think I should have. I think I think if we could have done another couple of albums, it would have been the real deal. Yes. It would have been the real deal. We were just, watercolor days is a clue to where it was heading and it would have been a really good outcome. But it was only beginning. We just never got be I think I would end it I always saw myself as not being on the road with the band I always saw myself as writing and stuff like that you know? I think Brian Wilson kind of wanted the same life didn't he he just couldn't yes. be being on the road he just wanted to write and uh be well, in the studio that more of more of what I did I was more I loved the rehearsals more than the gigs yes you know the, like the laboratory Putting it all together, you know. Seeing what's going to work, actually. Yeah, I could imagine you could have been a, a creative thing. Yeah. Well, look, this is well. Creative thank you. People are like children, don't they? They want their own way. They want everything to be different. They want toys to play with. Well, I guess I was no different. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you don't appreciate what you've got when you're that age. In a way, you think it's. That's the truest thing, David. What you just said there. You were saying about me. If I could make myself understand that. If I could have made myself understand that at the time, my life would have been a lot better. Yes. It's a weird world, isn't it, sometimes? 
It is. Well, look, thank you. I'm sorry about your late start. Oh I'm my God, that's ab that's absolutely fine. These things happen. Like oh, I said, I was... really it's not like me actually. I'm very punctual, aren't I? <laughs> well, well, I've, a I was hoping nothing <laughs> horrible happened, and b I was suddenly thinking, oh, perhaps you're in a different time zone, and you're going to sort of. So I did slightly well, think perhaps you're going to go. It would be great to have that excuse. It was just it was mundane family matters, and I completely lost the plot. Well, you know, the, the family Sorry. family things are always going to take you time. But look, thank oh, you so much yeah. for this. Um, thank you. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and you can always use it or or not. I don't know. You probably get. Well, it's really enjoyable. It's nice to talk to you, David. I hope it was all interesting at some points. God, it was, it's fantastic. It was an amazing story, actually. It's been brilliant. Well, thank you, William. Do you go for William or Billy? Billy's fine. Billy's fine. Billy's fine. Anyway, look, take care and all the best for the thank autumn. You. See you later. Bye. Yeah, and you, and I look forward to seeing the show. And I mean, your show is a general, not, not me, the, the show is. <laughs> okay, see you later. Bye. Thanks, David. Bye. Bye. And that's me in conversation with Billy Ritchie from various bands, ABC, ABC, one, two, three, and also Clouds. And um, yes, a fascinating story. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, please. And also, these have all been archived. Lucky you. So if you want to hear any, you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. There you go. Check it out. Stay safe. Have a great week.